Welcome to Get Birding with me, Hamza Yassin, a guide to bird watching and home to stories about birds. Supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. Welcome to the last episode of Get Birding for this current season. It's absolutely freezing out there. I'm recording most of my voiceovers from the comfort of my warm house. I wanted to do an episode about winter and how these birds are surviving the harshest season we have. And they don't have a warm, centrally heated house. They don't have jumpers and hoodies and thick socks and an open fire. They simply just have the feathers that are on their backs. And when I break it down and talk about them like that, it absolutely boggles my mind to think, how on earth are they surviving? Earlier in the series, I spoke to Adrian Thomas and he introduced me to his garden and gave me some advice that we can all do to make it more appealing for birds. Now, of course, winter is here, and it can be a very difficult time for birds. So one way we can help them is by providing food and water for them to get through these tough months. Now, Adrian also had some more advice for me on this. Where I'd go immediately in, in my mind is into the mind of a bird. What, does a, what is a bird looking for? And all creatures have got what are called search images for what they need in life. They've got a search image for where they nest or where they breathe. They've got a search image of where to food. It's kind of imprinted into them of where the best places and the safest places are. And what you find in gardens, when you stop and watch the birds, not on the feeder, but before they get to it and when they leave the feeder, you'll see that most birds will come either from dense cover to the feeder and back into that cover or many birds will actually effectively stepping stone down into the garden. It's like they come down on a ladder into the garden. They go into the tops of the trees, check around. Is it safe? Is it not? Okay, I'll drop down a level, drop down a level. And when you look at it in that way, you suddenly realise that gardens, we live down at ground level in those gardens. But birds are looking down into them and they're often kind of like a pit that they have to come down into. And that's quite a dangerous place for them to come to. So... Anything you can do to increase those stepping stones down and looking at how those stepping stones work for how birds can get to your feeder. If you put a feeder in the middle of an open lawn, that's a long dash across that lawn for a bird to get to it and a long dash back if they get a little bit spooked. But equally, if you put your feeder so close to cover, a bird will think, well, I don't know what's in that cover. Could be a cat, could be a sparrowhawk, don't know. And if you put your feeder somewhere and you find that it doesn't work, yep, think in, in the mind of the bird where it might work better and move that feeder around and experiment until you get to a place that really is working for birds. There's then, intriguingly, the next message, which is one of the things with feeding that 
is so critical is to keep the feeding stations hygienic. So having found one place, don't stick with it forever and a day. You will need to move it just to ensure there's no buildup of pathogens and pests. And we know all about disease from the past year or two, don't we? And, and how careful you need to be. Uh, and that's the same with feeding, feeding birds. Food in the same place day after day means that birds are unnaturally coming to this never-ending source. But in doing so, they're probably pooping and they're, the ability to transmit disease is increased. So hygiene is so critical when you're feeding birds. If I was a, a young student and I only had a little bit of money to buy one feeder and one type of food, what would it be? So I'm going to assume that excluding squirrels who will eat through your supply very rapidly and excluding some of the large birds who are doing very well anyways, and what you really want to feed is your tits and your sparrows and your finches, my recommendation would actually be to go for quality on on both counts. So a, a weak plastic feeder may seem like a good budgetary option, but will probably get chewed through by the squirrels. And a cheap food mix may seem a great option too. What tends to happen in cheap food mixes is that they've been bulked up with things such as wheat, which only a few birds can actually manage to to take in and, and break down. So I would say pay that little bit more for a good feeder and a squirrel buster type feeder will just ensure that you can adjust it so that heavier creatures like squirrels or pigeons can be excluded the ports close when a heavy heavy creature lands on it that will mean you're only feeding the small birds and i'd go for a high quality seed mix that doesn't include things such as wheat and that way you know that birds are getting all the nutrients that they require and they're not chucking out the stuff that they don't don't like now tell me we're going into autumn and winter what sort of birds would you be seeing at this time of the year so in the garden environment You've got your resident resident birds that are in there all year and breeding quite happily. For many people, top of the tree in the RSPB's big garden bird watch in January is the house sparrow, and it's been sat up the top for a few years now. Some people still have starlings, but they're one of our decreasing species, and it's less than one in two gardens that now have starlings within them, which is a great shame. But most people will have blackbird and we'll have robin, and we'll have blue tit and and great tit. And that's a great starting point, even within a really urban environment. I had the pleasure in one year of doing the Big Garden Bird Watch in the garden of Number 10 Downing Street, and they have goldfinches in there, right there in the heart of London. They've got goldfinches, one of our most beautiful garden birds. So there's always chance that most gardens will have something in the order of 10 species, and the more rural or the larger your garden gets, you can boost that up to 15 or 20 species after that point. So uh, lots of birds out there. And in winter, we get the boost in numbers for two reasons. One is where we get birds moving in from the countryside who only moved a couple of kilometres or so out to breed. Now come winter, the, the food supply is dwindling naturally in the landscape the seeds and the berries are, uh, are less and less so they come in for that supplementary food and that safety within the garden plus we get immigrant birds coming in from scandinavia and mainland europe so a lot of your blackbirds that you'll see will actually be continental blackbirds that are coming in and you might then get the kind of jewels in the crown birds that we don't have in the uk in summer but come here from scandinavia things like red wings 
and field fairs. And if you're really, really lucky, that kind of caped crusader of waxwing. Uh, <laughs> I love them. I absolutely love them. I had a little tiny, tiny garden when I was in university and a waxwing landed on it. And believe it or not, at that time, I didn't even know what it was. I took a picture, sent it to my friend. It just blew up. Everyone was in my garden trying to see them. It's lovely to see that, to, to think that my garden is just not home to my birds that live with me, but they're actually home to birds that come from Scandinavia, the Arctic tundra, Russia, all that kind of stuff. And in my garden at the moment, uh, I've got some passage birds moving through that won't stay for the winter, but need my garden in autumn and spring. So I've got uh chiffchaffs and willow warblers i had a white throat this week i'm afraid i'm about to blow your mind i had a wryneck in my garden this week uh, which for those who don't know is it used to be a pretty common breeding bird 100 years ago and unfortunately in the 1960s 70s became extinct as a breeding bird in the uk it's now a rare passage migrant it's a member of the woodpecker family it eats ants but it is this most curious thing. And the name Wryneck is because if it gets caught either by a predator or in a mist net when birds are ringing, it moves its neck around. It's thought to be mimicking a snake and predators go, oh, my word, what have I just caught? I'm going to let go of this. They even hiss like a snake. So it's an incredible species. And its Latin name is Jinx from which we get the term jinx. It was a bird that was considered to be so curious that you could use the wryneck to put a jinx on people. That's where the word jinx comes That's from. That's amazing. Can I stick my neck out and say, what is your favourite bird? I would have thought, like, the way you just described it in wryneck, that would be your favourite bird. But if I ask you the question, what is your favourite bird? What is your answer? <laughs> so, this is... This is this is a truthful answer. It is the last bird that I've seen, whatever that bird happens to be, because both in terms of their looks and in terms of their calls and songs, uh, and I've had great pleasure in, in doing a lot of that within my RSPB work, doing bird sound recordings and writing and uh, about bird song. If you didn't have the dull, down, kind of dreary looking ones, the bright ones wouldn't look so exceptional. And a house sparrow's got loads of perky character to it and a starling, which is so common that most people dismiss it. When you stop and look at it, it is, the name means the little thing covered in stars. And that's what it is. It is, and when it catches the light. And so each of them have their character. And yeah, I adore going into the garden and the robin accompanying me while I'm digging. And at that point, it's my favourite bird. And then I see a little gold crest and I wonder how a, little, a bird of that size, so tiny, can survive our winter in, in my garden. And then that's my favourite. And, and so it goes on. I even love crows. When you stop them and, and you, you watch how innovative and creative and... Uh, yeah, they might be a, a bit kind of boisterous and a bit dominant when they're on the scenes and birds scatter as they arrive. But each of them is, is, is a joy unto themselves, I think. Adrian, what cool projects are you working on at the moment and how can people get involved? Yeah, the two two projects that I think are really 
great things for people to get involved with. And that's what I'm really keen about, providing people with the means to, to do more, learn more and have great experiences. The first of them is called Nature on Your Doorstep. So it's an RSPB project, which is like a one-stop online place for you to find out all sorts of things that you can do in your garden or outside space or local green space to help wildlife, all sorts of tips and hints. And they include feeding and building a nest box and all of those stuff. So go straight onto the RSPB website to find that. And the second thing I think most people will know about, which is the Big Garden Bird Watch, which comes up every year, the last weekend in January. A million people took part last year. Both projects are absolutely free to take part in, no cost at all. Uh, and the Big Garden Bird Watch is our way of getting a snapshot as to how well our garden birds are faring. And it's just an hour counting the birds straight outside your window, pop your results online, and we get to see what the winners and losers are. And if there are losers, then we, we dive in to try and find out what we need to do to save them. Last weekend in January, but any hour during the day. But we'd normally say morning is good. That's when birds are most active. But loads of information online, identification sheets, tips for how to do it. Most important thing, grab yourself a coffee, cup of tea and sit down and enjoy it. Hearing the wind rustle through the trees like this always interests me. If you ever get the chance to pick up a swallow or a swift or a, even like a blackbird, which is slightly a bigger bird, there's not much to them, but yet they can still survive outside in all the weather, the rain, the cold, the sleet, the snow, and I just want to know how do they do it. I have such big respect for birds, and especially the ones that travel across the sea and travel for days and nights at a time. A new study showed me that snipe, when they're migrating during the day, they fly at 2,000 metres above the ground. And at night time, they actually go up to even higher, to 4,000 metres. And all I can think of is that's due to navigation. They're trying to get out of the way of all the clouds so that they can see the stars and be able to navigate using the stars. But to me, I can't even fathom flying at 2,000 metres, let alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of the cold and the dark, to be travelling at 4,000 metres for a whole evening, for a whole night, and then to descend back again and keep on traveling days at a time. I wanted to catch up with my friend Kim, who is an amazing person. She has a doctorate in wildfowl and she rehabilitates bats and I know bats are not birds but they've got wings and you know that's close enough for me. I'm Dr Kim Wallace, I'm an ecologist for a leading utility company. Dr Kim, how are you doing? Hello, yes I'm very well thank you. Uh, you all right? You good? Yeah, very good thank you. Um, what have you been up to? 
Oh, well, you know, caring for bats, standard, um, bit of work, playing with horses, checking out some birds, the usual. When you say caring for bats, what do you mean? So I take in sick and injured bats and rehabilitate them for release back into the wild where I can. Um, and then, yeah. How did you get into that? I think I met a lady about 14 years ago that was retired and she basically just did that for a for her job even though she was retired um I thought it was a little bit um, mad at the time but she obviously saw a weakness in me and kind of took me under her wing and trained me up and I've been doing it ever since really so it's it's really good it's really really rewarding um and you get to interact with loads of different people and members of the public as well so it takes a lot of time but I do love it now you are a doctor but you're not a doctor of bats are you no I'm a doctor of well, Doctor of Ducks, but that's not the official <laughs> official thing is um, Doctor of Ecology. So I did my PhD thesis on the impacts of construction activity on protected waterfowl species uh, at a site that I work at, um, which is Aberton Reservoir. So it's um, down in the south, big uh, water storage reservoir that's internationally important for its waterfowl. OK, what sort of uh, waterfowl do you get on there? Loads. So... It's got a Ramsar designation and an SPA designation, um, which basically means it's covered by an awful lot of protection and legislation. But it holds up to about 30,000 waterfowl over the winter, each winter. And then a load of birds come there to, to migrate and to refuel, to stop off. So it's absolutely heaving, certainly at this time of year, with, with birds. And they are mainly ducks and geese and waders. So we've got some really key species there, uh, which are like gadwall, shoveler, teal and widgeon, which are what we term as dabbling ducks. So dabbling ducks. Dabbling ducks, yes. So that's their kind of feeding guild. Um, and they dabble along the water and scoop up bits of prey. So whether that be inverts or um, vegetation. Uh, so that's why we term them as dabbling ducks. We've then got diving ducks, which, uh, as the name suggests, dive for their food. And they'll eat mollusks. And um, we've got tufted duck, potchard. Um, we've got fish eating species that are protected there, which are cormorant, uh, great crested grebe. And then we've got coot and mute swan. How did you get into birding? So I was working on this Aberton project, but it was really through exposure to that site and just going onto site, experiencing being outside and looking at the different birds and learning about them. Yeah where I got my interest and then I learned more obviously through the, the study and the PhD yeah and it sparked an interest and I've just carried on ever since really um, and I'm learning all the time and that's brilliant I love to learn so yeah now I do all sorts of things with birds which is um, great so I've started bird ringing so can you tell us a little bit what that entails for you and because I know a lot of it entails mist netting but I presume if you're doing waterfowl you can't really mist net them, can you? No. So there's a couple of different, well, several different techniques that you can employ to catch birds. So the mist netting, as you suggest, is uh, more for the the smaller songbirds. Um, and we do mist net at the site. We've got what's called a constant effort site. Mm -hmm. So we do that several times um, in a year. Um, and then the waterfowl, uh, we use, they're essentially 
So you can use a few different things, but we mainly use one big permanent trap and it's got lots of funnels and you bait it up and the, the ducks go in and in theory they can't get out again. Uh, and then we also use what looks like a giant rabbit hutch. It's kind of a wire, a wooden framed wire trap that you can move to different areas of the water according to the water levels, because as we all know, water levels go up and down at different sites. Um, so it's portable. And it's the same principle. You have these little funnels, you chuck a load of food in, the ducks get hungry, especially in the winter when they need to eat more. And you go and catch them and then you take lots of different measurements from them, um, what we term biometrics. So we'll take their weight and their wing length, we'll sex them, we'll age them where we can, um, put a unique referenced ring on their leg, um, which collects data. And then the idea is that you we may retrap that bird in years to come, or it might be retrapped by somewhere else um, on its migration route and through that, you find out a lot about their life traits and longevity. It's really important data collection. Um, but also, it's just awesome holding different birds and get, getting to see them up close. Um, and I, I think there's a real thing in the UK and in, in, in general, people appreciate the birds, but actually we take for granted like the, the blue tip that flitting around pretty much everyone's garden. But... You get it up close. It's got a proper little attitude on it. It starts to target the little the little bits on the side of your fingers and twist it. And they're very chattery and they're absolutely stunning. All birds in the hand, and the, the dunnock as well. People think that's just a small brown jobby. Absolutely, absolutely stunning. The intricacies in its um, streaking is gorgeous. So it, yeah, I absolutely love it. And I've still got a long way to go with ID bird song and everything but it's brilliant you were saying um they get hungry in the winter does most of this happen during the winter or is this just mainly a summer thing or do you mainly focus on your work during winter that it is mainly during the winter during the summer months we still have birds and they they're residents and then they we get a bit of an influx when they're molting so waterfowl um, molt all of their flight feathers at the same time and they can't fly during that time which is quite different to how other birds molt they'll molt individual feathers or sets of feathers at, at one time so but why I know it's a bit of a an evolutionary they seek refuge at that time so they try and protect themselves as much as possible um, and the idea is to just get over and done with and then they can go on their merry way um, right but it is it is unique in in the birding world in terms of waterfowl. They're the only ones that, that do that. Um, and that's why they seek nice, calm refuges where there's lots of different habitats that they can hide in and uh, get away from, from predators. We focus our attentions uh, when there's huge amounts of, of ducks on the reservoir in the winter. Yeah. And then they're more likely to come in to the traps with bait as well because, as you referred to, they get hungry. There's not that much food around in the winter months compared to the summer. You know, the vegetation stopped stop growing. Um, a lot of them feed on like the underwater plants, macrophytes, which obviously reduce um, in the winter. So that's that's why it's easier, easier to catch them. How do they keep warm? Because if they're coming in, if they're migrants, they're obviously leaving places like Russia and the Arctic to come to shelter with us. But 
how do they keep warm? They've got another thing. So when you're out catching them in the winter, you get really cold hands and you put your hands in. When you're handling the bird, they're so toasty warm, especially the duck. Um, they, their feathers are just, they're great. And they, they build up a layer of, lots of layers of fat. So one of the measurements we, we take in, um, in autumn, especially um, and after migration, you can blow on the kind of tracheal pit of, of birds, um, more thinking the smaller birds, and you can see and you can score the layer, the level of fat that they've got. And they'll consciously put on more weight uh, before migration and then try and keep up the weight and the fat um, over winter to, to see them through. Maybe that's what I'm doing then. Maybe I'm just getting ready for winter. But throughout summer and winter, I'm always getting ready for winter. <laughs> well, we need it's, it's like dormice as well. You know, you need to put on a bit of um, podge during running up to winter. Yeah, yeah. How do you catch waders? Because ducks, I can understand you put the tunnels and the food for them, but waders don't really come down to bread and seeds and stuff. Mm, yeah, we haven't. We've tried tried to catch a few snipe um by kind of or jack snipe um because they tend to just sit still when you can basically be on top of them and, and catch them but um we only tried that a couple of times waders are difficult and most people then do something called cannon netting um we haven't done that at, at the site we might do it in the future potentially so when you say cannon netting what do you mean exactly are you like firing cannonballs at them I can just picture that now. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's basically a massive net that's triggered by something that, that looks like a, a cannon in it, and it sends out, yeah, a net, and it, it right. lands on the birds, and then, as I understand it, you kind of run, scoop them up and, and ring them. But it's it's because of the nature of birds. They're all on the shoreline. As you say, they're not going to readily go into a trap. You can have small traps called potter traps, but I don't think they're that successful for, for waders either. Either You can maybe use them for the odd sort of solitary water bird. If there was a young person listening to this uh, podcast and they wanted to get into birding, um, what sort of advice would you give them? And would you steer them towards waders or would you steer them towards passerines? Well, both. Okay. <laughs> Why do <you> <laughs> Yeah, that's true. I think I think just getting out and about and experiencing it. If you go to a big site, I mean, there's loads of RSPB reserves, there's some of the Wildlife Trust reserves, um, you know, utility companies like I work for, we've got big reservoirs and you've always got bird hides. You've always got somewhere to stand and just watch. And I think a lot of people getting into it and certainly as someone who came in relatively late in my career to, you know, birds, it can be a bit daunting. But you don't need to know everything. You'll never learn everything in terms of birds or wildlife. So just just go out and enjoy it. Pick a couple, take a book, or everyone's got Google these days. But and just just start to build up a, a database, and then you don't have to go far either. So if you want to do the pasteurise, you just watch out your window. Put a bird feeder up. Go to your little local patch of scrub or woodland and just sit and listen and try and spot a few birds and just see what takes your interest. And it will go from there, really. It's it's just exposure and enjoying it. If you were a bird, what bird would you be? If I were a bird. Um, You've got to be careful well, about what you choose because other birds will be offended if you don't pick I them. Know. Um, <laughs> what would I be? 
I'm going to stick. I mean, I could say all sorts of amazing tropical birds, but I'm, I'm going to stick with some, well. I'm going to stick with something that I'm going to go with long-tailed tit. <laughs> Why? Because they're really sociable. They sound really cute when they're moving through all the vegetation. They're constantly chattering, which is something I tend to do as well. And they've got gorgeous little fluffy heads, lovely tails, and they're really family family orientated. So if you catch one, you tend to catch quite a few. And they've got gorgeous little eyes. Oh yeah, I'm going to be a long-tailed tip. <laughs> and the sound, they've got a really gorgeous little ring when they're chattering as well. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, um, one last question, Kim. What cool scientific fact about birds can you share with us? Well, there's lots, but I think I'm going to stick with the migration theme because wetlands are amazing and they have a lot of migratory birds. Um, so the fact is about the Arctic tern. So they will migrate from pole to pole each year. Uh, they can live up to 30 years. And apparently, if you were to measure that out, it means over a course of their lifetime, they will have been to the moon and back more than three times. Which is astound it's absolutely astounding for a, a little bird. And they never look tired. You see them just flying along and <laughs> they don't look like they've travelled, you know, 90,000 kilometres and on one migration. That's amazing. Kim... Thank you so much. Uh, it's a real pleasure talking to you and getting to see you again. Um, and hopefully you get the chance to come up to Scotland and we can do some birding together. Or I'll uh, come down to your place. Yes, yes. Well, you've got a lot. Yeah, I need to see the Pine Martins as well. weather's certainly turning at the moment. Winter is just around the corner. It's that magical time of the year where we normally get a whole load of hooper swans coming through, red wings, field fares, Greenland white front geese, even sometimes barnacle geese if we're lucky. Now it's time for a very special guest indeed. Something you probably didn't know is the person who makes the music for Get Birding is a massive birder himself. His name is Chad Crouch, but also goes by the name of Poddington Bear. Super excited to have you. Thank you for joining, Chad. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you are at the moment and what do you do? I'm in Portland, Oregon, in the United States, on the West Coast, uh, and I am a musician. For me, that means I make music in my home office. I'm prolific, so uh, I've been able to make a lot of instrumental music over the years and uh, now uh, can subsist on that uh, and the licensing revenue that I get from that. Um, not a lot of people might know you by name as such, uh, but they all have heard your music, any of our listeners from Series 1. Now, I've been talking around and asking a few people, your name 
comes up everywhere in the podcast world. Why is that? Because everyone just sings your praise and says you are a legend in the podcast world. <laughs> I've never heard that. <laughs> because everyone uses your music. Well, yes, there are a number of, uh, of producers, podcasters that uh, have found my music and have used it in their um, productions over the years. I hear you're a big birder. Is that true? Yes. You do a bit of birding? Yeah? Yes. What yes. kind of birds do you normally go after? Well, uh, you know, I go after the birds that are in my uh, immediate area. So I, when I go birding, I'm in a metropolitan area and... I'm in the green spaces within that metropolitan area. So in certain uh, patches, uh, you know, you get up to 250 species uh, that you could see if you uh, really got familiar with that area. So mostly what I'm seeing these days are the winter fowl coming back, the ducks. Uh, but we have, uh, over the weekend, I uh, enjoyed seeing a pileated woodpecker which is a massive woodpecker, uh, is a very striking bird. I don't know if you have anything similar in the old world, but it's bigger than a crow, and it's just a beautiful bird. And when I say old world, that's a birder term that probably most of your listeners are familiar with, but some may not be, but basically the Eastern Hemisphere. Presumably, evolutionarily speaking, birds got their start at least in their genomes that way and eventually made their way over somehow to the Western Hemisphere. It's fascinating that there are some species that only exist in the Western Hemisphere, the hummingbird, for example. And we have a lot of subspecies of hummingbird, and they're delightful. It's always a delight to see a hummingbird when I'm out. Now, how often do you go out birding? Is it like uh, a regular thing for you? Do you have a patch diary? Do you keep records of what's around, or is it just as and when you have a bit of free time? I go out practically every weekday after I drop my son off at school. So in the morning, and I don't keep a patch diary, and I don't keep a life list per se. I tried it, but for me, birding wasn't so much about the the pursuit of list keeping. Uh, that's not as... Uh, interesting to me as keeping a tab of what I've seen with photography and trying to get better and better photographs, as well as just listening. And that beca that's become a big part of my music, where I've released a series of releases that incorporate um, basically field recordings of bird song, environmental noise, what, what we call soundscapes, uh, to accompany me uh, and minimal um, productions for uh, piano, woodwinds, some synthesizer, marimba or vibraphone or glockenspiel, that type of thing. Basically, I start with the soundscape recording as a canvas and then listen to uh, the bird song and see what key roughly I think they're singing in and start with that and then look for other motifs like uh, the rhythm, uh, the, the, the overall mood and feeling, um, I, and then incorporate that into my composition. And sometimes, uh, but rarely, I actually use, for, 
for example, in a recent um, composition, I used the sound of a woodpecker drumming and was able to sample it and re-pitch it in a way that worked with the composition. So I would actually play that sample of the woodpecker drumming in different keys, in different, to accompany the melodic structure of the song. Yeah. You've written some songs, um, especially about birds. Can you tell us more about those? Honestly, uh, when I'm writing music, I often, you know, it's it starts as a number and a chord progression. So I, that's how I keep track of my songs. And I have I have a little diary that keeps all my chord progressions. And, and the, each song is just a number when I start out. And then I have to name them. And when I have to name the songs for release, I, you know, more recently, I have named songs after birds. And when I go and name them, I think, oh, this song reminds me of such and such a bird. I'm very prolific. And so uh, so it's a lot of uh, what it comes down to is just, you know, <laughs> I have to give it some name and not just a number. And I love birds, so why not name it after a bird? I've got a friend who names his kids after birds. Okay. <laughs> and I'm like, how many kids are you going to have? <laughs> you know, starts with birds. But I like that. Songs is a lot better. Is there anyone in your family that you kind of let them listen to your music and critique it and give you advice on it? Because for me, it's always my mother. And I show stuff to my mother with my wildlife filmmaking. And she goes, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it beautiful? I'm like, no, mother, I want you to give me critiqueness. Like, what can I do better? Is there someone in your family that does that for you? I like that story. Uh, yes, my my mom has always been very supportive, and she is the only person in the world that has a, a CD uh, set of my recent recordings because they aren't released on, on CD. That's her technology, so I had to specially go and uh, burn these CDs for her to listen to, and she likes to listen to them in the morning and when she's driving her car. And she... Uh, she is like your mom. She is uh, not off there to offer me a critique, but she's always there to offer me support and uh, a little bit of praise. So, yeah, that's nice. My son uh, is much more critical. <laughs> uh, he'll say point blank. I'll paraphrase. That sounds the same as all your other songs. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you but then do something different? <laughs> Isn't there a famous saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it? <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone loves your music and they clearly use it in a lot of their podcasts. So you, you are successful in that way. And if he thinks that, then that's different. That's different. Now, why do you continue to make music free for everybody and for anyone to use? My model of... Uh monetizing you know being a professional musician doesn't require that people buy my albums or t-shirts or that they see me in in a live venue uh in fact i think i'd let them down if i had to play live it's not my strong suit so therefore uh the way i'm able to subsist is through licensing uh my music to uh professionals who are willing to pay for it and for those 
who haven't reached that status uh, and are still operating as amateurs, still making um, some kind of productions, be they podcasts or work for school or just, uh, you know, home movies or their first uh, attempts at making a short film, that type of thing. I allow those amateurs to use my music for free because it's good for them to have access to music. And it's good for me because it gets my name out there and it helps people just find me and discover me because uh, that's the hardest part of being a musician is is overcoming obscurity, really. Um, and so that's helped me a lot over the years. If you were a bird, what sort of bird would you be and why? Oh, I didn't anticipate this one. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go with a hummingbird. And I think just because they're so acrobatic that it would be just such a thrill to just dive so quickly and and, and be able to just hover and just move like that. I think that would just absolutely be thrilling. Yeah, I'll go with that. I love it. Hummingbirds are amazing for me as well because... If I remember correctly, they're the only bird that can actually fly backwards. Because most birds have to fly forwards. Hummingbirds, with the way they oscillate their wings, they can actually physically fly backwards. Which to me, you know, breaks the laws of gravity by flying anyway and then just mashes them up even more by doing it backwards. Definitely. They're getting lift on both strokes, the down and the up. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They're very maneuverable. My final question, what cool scientific fact can you tell me about birds? Oh, boy. You know, the first one that comes to mind is a really weird one. But it's a, it's about a bird that I mentioned uh, earlier, the pileated uh, woodpecker. And they have an extremely long tongue that... Uh, so they're a woodpecker, and they uh, their food is within the bark, within trees. And so their tongue, in order to get it to extend, there's actually part of it that's connected to a movable piece within their skull. Now, I don't know the scientific names for this uh, thing, but this is something that I uh, discovered through um, uh, just my leafing through my uh, Sibley's uh what is, the book is called What Is It Like to Be a Bird or something? I think I've got that wrong, but it's something like that. If you type that into Google, you'd get the result. That I thought was fascinating, that there's actually, their tongue goes back and attaches to the back of their skull, and the skull, uh, there's pieces that actually move in order to make their tongue go out that distance. That's that's pretty fascinating. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I wish I could do that, you know? Just eat my food. <laughs> by sitting at the chair and just reach out and get everything that I need to get. Yes, exactly. That would be uh, quite luxurious. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What's your most downloaded song uh, that you've produced so far? Depends on if you're uh, asking under my given name, Chad Crouch or Poddington Bear. But for Poddington Bear, it's a song called Lip Gloss. It's a disco song. So totally out of character. It was, it's just straight up disco. And for me, uh, as Chad Crouch, it's a song called Carry On. It's a song where I play guitar. And, uh, and it's kind of just a, a, a lighthearted, but not uh, too, 
not too precious uh, kind of indie pop song. Spectrum of my releases is not super wide, but it's it's kind it's pretty wide. Yeah, in terms of the genres that I'm able to kind of play with. Yeah. Amazing, Chad. Thank you so much. It's really good to put a voice to all the music that we've been hearing and loving. Um, and I just want to say thank you so much for joining me on this uh, small interview. And I look forward to hearing more of your music. Oh, that's delightful. And I'm flattered that you gave me the invite. And uh, it's a pleasure to be with you and chat with you. Yeah. Likewise, buddy. Likewise. Thank you. Well, can you believe it? That is the last episode of Get Birding for this season. It's been an absolute blast. I want to thank all my guests that have been on to talk to me. And I want to thank you all for listening as well. I've learned so much from everybody. If you want to keep in contact with us and see what's happening in hopefully the next season of Get Birding, um, you can find us on social media at Get Birding Pod. But from the bottom of my heart, I want to thank everybody that's been on this season uh, for chatting to me and talking to me. It's been an absolute blast and I hope to catch up with you guys very, very soon. Take care. Bye-bye. Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production, supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. What up, Dougie? How you doing? Good. I'm just recording a few uh, interviews and I've got to do a little bit of wild track and kind of talk to myself a little bit, Um, which makes me sound a bit sad, but (laughs) I'm talking to myself, but uh, no, for uh, all the podcasts.